Hey everyone, welcome to the another episode of On the Ball. Uh, Ball stands for Best Advice and Life Lessons, a podcast show where I focus on extracting best advice and life lessons from world-class performers and leaders from various fields by deconstructing and teasing out their routines, success habits, tactics, techniques, hacks, tricks, and the best advice or life lesson that they have ever received that you can use and apply to your own life and work. I'm more interested in learning things my guests have never said or shared before. So today, I'm super thrilled to have my friend Scott Van Vliet in this episode of On The Ball. Scott is the CVP of a group called IC3 at Microsoft. In his current role, Scott leads cutting-edge product and engineering org responsible for building intelligent communication platform on which Microsoft Teams which by the way is the fastest growing business application in the history of Microsoft and Skype are built. Before that, he was a GM at Amazon leading new Alexa initiatives in charge of expanding Alexa's capabilities into new areas. Prior to that, Scott has played leadership roles at Mattel as CTO and VP and also at Capgemini. We also have today a very special guest on the show, Amar Kaleem, as part of the Microsoft Giving Campaign. Uh, the Giving Campaign at Microsoft supports our employees' passion for giving. And each October, a fun and spirited employee giving campaign, a tradition since 1983, makes a significant annual impact in addition to generous giving all around the year. So Amar is my colleague. He is a principal PM in Microsoft Org with expertise in enterprise voice, telephony, collaboration, working with C-level execs of Fortune 100 companies around the world. Welcome to the show, Scott and Amar. Let's play ball. Great, Sweeney. Thanks for, for having me here. Thank you. Thank you, Sweeney, for the opportunity. Hey, Scott. Uh, first, let me, uh, I'm sure we'll jump around a little bit and this may be a bit non-linear, uh, but let's jump right in. Uh, I'm always curious to ask folks who join saying, hey, Scott, you have young kids. Uh, when your kids ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? What do you say given the complexity of what you do? That's a great question. And, and, I, and I have, uh, as you know, lots of kids. I have six kids. And uh, I've been asked this question, you know, multiple times over the years and, and have had interesting and different responses. Uh, I, I would imagine if you ask my children that today, they would say he sits in a desk and is on video calls all day. Uh, that's uh, what they might <laughs> might say, uh, as I'm sure is the same for for you and for others yeah. in the situation, right? Um, but but when I've I've been asked this question for my kids before, I kind of break it down into into this. I say, well, Daddy gets paid to make decisions, and my son Liam says, well, what does that mean? I said, well. I make decisions like where we're going to invest resources, how we're going to scale our service, how we're going to add new features to our products. And so sometimes, you know, they come to daddy and ask his opinion and I make decisions, you know, based on things I know. And my son says, well, I make decisions. Can I get paid too? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I said, well, you know, there's a, there's, and I kind of explained to him, well, there's a difference here is that, you know, daddy spent um, a lot of years building software and, and, uh, you know, working with, uh, uh, with products and building products for customers. And so a lot of what I do, I used to write code. Uh, I still write code in my spare time, although uh, I'm sure I'm not allowed to check into any of our repos in terms of my my coding skills these days. Uh, but um, but yeah, primarily it's it's to make decisions that impact 
uh, the lives of our customers um, that uh, have an impact on users. And it's informed by, you know, the 20 plus years of, of experience that I have. That's awesome, Scott. That is, that's a great way to put it, uh, making decisions. And I, I, I say similar things to my kids as well, but I also add a caveat saying, hey, daddy makes decisions at work, but I'm not the boss at home. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> So, hey, uh, I see that the one thing that always uh, piques my interest is um, uh, your background, people's background, and, uh, you know, we are the different walks of life uh, that people come from. I see that you have an undergrad. I was doing some research on you, Scott, before this, although we've been working for a while now. Uh, I was doing some research and I, I saw that you have an undergrad degree in criminal justice administration. Wait. What drove you to criminal justice and how did you end up in software, technology, computer science as a career? That's a, it's a great question and it's, it's, it's a fun story. So, you know, I've, I've been around computers nearly all my life. My father was a software engineer, um, you know, and, and worked on, on early technology in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, I, I grew up around mainframe computers uh, and having large, you know, um, early PCs in my home. Um, and had the opportunity to tinker with and play with, you know, computers. So I had a, 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 an existing background in technology, um, but I never thought of myself becoming a software developer or a programmer, as we called it, um, as, as something that I, although I love playing games on the computer. Um, and so I always had a, a, a proclivity towards, um, you know, computers because of that. Um, but um, in high school, I'm not sure if you, you had this experience as well, but they had these kind of college counselors and career counselors, and they came in and they gave you a test to see what type of career you would be best at. It's kind of an aptitude test, um, but kind of a vocational version of that. And this is at, uh, you know, La Mirada High School here in uh, Los Angeles in California. Got it. And, uh, and in that test, um, the results came back and said, okay, Scott, you know, based on this test, you would make a great attorney or a great engineer. And, and I saw that, okay, great. And again, at the time, um, engineer in my mind didn't mean software engineer because we may not have called engineers software engineers back then. We called them computer scientists or, you know, computer technicians. Uh, and, I, and so I thought about engineers like, well, that's like a mechanical engineer or somebody who operates a train. Uh, and I said, okay, so an attorney, like which one makes more? Uh, and they said, well, an attorney. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go do that. And so very flippantly, I looked at this, you know, kind of what is the most value I could get out of my career uh, and again, my, my parents are immigrants and always wanted to me to be an attorney or to be a doctor or kind of pursue one of those professional services paths. And so I just said, okay, well, I'm going to go into a career in law. And so I did research and said, well, what's the best undergrad degree to get um, before you go into law school? And it was get, you know, study criminal justice administration. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd been working again with technology computers all along uh, and went to school at San Diego State University studying criminal justice. And at the time I went to school, um, you know, I brought a computer with me, a 486, you know, a 66 hertz, uh, you know, badass computer with a turbo button. I think if you recall, the turbo button actually made it slower yeah. <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> I do. Um, but, but at the time, you know, I, I'd actually been building websites, you know, early days of Mosaic and kind of early days of HTML and the HTTP specification. Um, I, I'd been building websites for bands. I played music as a kid. And so I was like, I'm going to build a website for my band. We're going to have an email address and we're going to build a guest book where people can come and post things like a forum type thing. 
And uh, when I got to school at home, I'd been using, um, you know, dial up Internet. But at my university in the dorms, they actually had Ethernet. They had wired Ethernet all throughout the dorms. And it was one of the first um, Cal State schools to actually have this. And so I got connected with a, a land card that I, I brought back to school from my dad's uh, stash and just got obsessed with the Internet just got obsessed with websites and, you know, writing scripts and, you know, connecting to other people around the planet. Um, and while I was going to school, I started building websites for local companies. I started building websites for, you know, the industry I'd, I'd, I'd been close to. I grew up in Southern California, uh, was really into music and record labels and, you know, skateboarding and surfing and snowboarding. And so I started building websites for some of the local skate and surf companies out in California. Um, and one of them was called Volcom. Uh, Volcom is a, a, a clothing company. And I started building their websites uh, along with my band. Um, and as I was going through and studying, you know, for, for my criminal justice degree, uh, I realized I was making as much money, if not more money, actually, uh, building websites on the side on my own little side hustle um, than I would as a, a, you know, a junior attorney with another three years of school to go get my JD. And so I made a call saying, OK, well, it's the 90s. Uh, the internet is exploding. I'm just going to go be an engineer for for software, building websites. And that's when uh, I stopped uh, my path of of going to be an attorney and fell into the wonderful world of technology. And so uh, obviously there's lots of, of of gaps between you know that end of that story and where I am today, but that's that's kind of how I ended up in this field. Wow, that is fascinating, Scott. Uh, from criminal justice to being a lawyer to uh, uh, computer, uh, being in computer software. Um, I do remember one of my first gigs was actually very similar. Scott, I was thrown into the deep end of it. I had no clue. I was fresh out of college. And um, the first job that I took was actually they asked me to install uh, Novell Netware, if you remember yeah. that. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and this was on a server that I had no clue or no idea in terms of what 10 base T and 10 base 2 was. Um, but it's fascinating from there. I think I learned a lot, I would say, under pressure. <laughs> I mean, I learned so fast. Um, that was amazing. So great to know. Hey, given that and uh, your journey from Capgemini to Mattel to Amazon um, to Microsoft, that's, uh, that's a great journey as well. Amar, did you want to ask, uh, did you have a question about that? Uh, by the way, before you start there, Amar, what was your start like? <laughs> I went uh, straight away from, uh, you know, my high school into Air Force. So I was fixing runway lights and fixing planes and telecom. Never got an opportunity to think myself. But listening to uh, Scott, I, I did do some websites and stuff like that. So really, so what Scott question comes to my mind was listening to this fascinating story. Um, you've been part of this uh, computers and you've been around computers since childhood. So there's a tech culture, right? So what is your favorite thing about that tech culture? Well, I think the, the most exciting thing for me about technology um, is it's a liberating and democratizing thing. You know, again, in a world where, you know, so many of, of my colleagues have, have gone to great universities and, and gone through great programs and had opportunities to, to do wonderful things. Um, and I'm just a, you know, a poor kid uh, of, of uh, European immigrants, uh, you know, who grew up in, in, in East L.A. And uh, obviously my parents did, did well for themselves and they took care of us, but I don't come from a pedigree. And yet this technology emerges that allows me to build a fantastic career uh, without really having any pedigree or any reason 
uh, apart from the happenstance that uh, I grew up around computers and building computers, uh, that I could have a thriving career, right? And, and I see these moments happen all the time where, where people look at technology. And again, some of the great founders of, of, of the companies we love, including Apple and others, um, are those in which you know people defy odds um, to uh, to go and, and find success, and the technology is the democratizer. It's the thing that differentiates them, not because they chose a technology, but the technology allowed them to prove people wrong. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I have a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder, I guess, about being an under, underdog uh, from stories my father has told me about growing up post, post-World War II, coming over, not speaking English, having a German accent, uh, even though he was Dutch, or at least a, a, a Dutch accent that sounded German, and the things that he faced. And so I always have this idea of like, why I'm out to prove people wrong because they have an expectation about me or they have a preconceived notion about me. Um, and and when I think about technology, well, it doesn't care about my skin color. It doesn't care about my background. It doesn't care about any of those things. And I look at all the wonderful, the wonderful things we can build with it and the people that I've got to meet along the way um, who have, you know, come out of poor neighborhoods, who have faced racial oppression, but uh, found their way uh, around it through technology, to me, that's the most wonderful thing about the culture of the industry we're in and this technology uh, capability is that it allows us to be who we want to be. Awesome. So I have, a, I have one comment about, uh, you know, this is amazing, but about one comment about the criminal justice. My uh, high schooler, she is an obsessed with criminal justice. When the first time she came back from her first class last year, uh, she said, I need to practice to arrest you. So I got arrested by my daughter. <laughs> That's wonderful. It, it is a very, obviously, we've got a lot of things going on in the world right now in terms of the types of reforms that uh, we need to put in place. Um, but I'll tell you that my my studies in criminal justice administration were really eye-opening to me. I had a professor named Admiral Stoddard, uh, who was a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy, uh, who taught out of San Diego State um, and just did a wonderful job of of kind of describing kind of the the, the opportunity to serve others uh, in the form of of uh, you know justice. And uh, I'm excited for your daughter to pursue that path as well. Thanks. Great, that's a fascinating field. And Scott, um, hey, talking about that, right? Uh, is there any part of the criminal justice learning that you went to school for? Did you apply any of that? Do you think it's useful? Um, I asked that because my last guest was Walt Mossberg, right? Mm-hmm. And Walt was saying he was very, fa- I mean, he said something very fascinating. He said, hey, we teach kids a lot of things in school that are pretty irrelevant, right? Beyond a certain point, they don't get. Appli- I mean, you don't apply them in real life. So I'm just wondering, um, did you did you get to? Uh, I, I know you got to appreciate what what it is, but uh, I'm just curious, did you get to apply that? Well, I think the the one thing that w- really stuck out for me from the studies in criminal justice were were, were two things. One was um, the kind of uh, sociological aspects of of really trying to understand other people's perspective before forcing your own on them. Um, and so, you know, I think one of my personal mantras is, you know, seek um, uh, it is uh, you know, seek to understand uh, before demanding to be understood, right? Mm-hmm. And and so this idea of like, well, before you before you make judgment on someone, look to understand all the facts of the situation. Look to understand all your own biases. Like unconscious bias is something that's relatively in the zeitgeist today, um, and it's it's obviously a, a big issue. Um, but this is something that they were teaching us, you know, back in the day in, in, in my studies of criminal justice is like, don't use your preconceived notions um, and, and try to be uh, objective. 
And so I think that has really stuck with me in terms of of, of how it shaped my thinking and, and the way I treat others and also the way I look at problems for, for work. The other uh, the other key learning was um, uh, as one of the, the electives that was part of the program was Philosophy 201, the philosophy of logic, uh, which I actually ended up taking at a summer school program at Cal State Fullerton over a summer break. And that was another course that really changed my eyes around you know, the structure and cause and effect of even conditional structures and code uh, are represented in, in philosophy. Um, and, and so thinking about the world in a way of understanding the impacts of my actions, like it was, it was really cool to kind of uh, think about the most effective programming course for me was my philosophy course, um, but also one that has, has kind of guided how I think about fairness and how I think about treating others. Awesome, that's fascinating, Scott. I mean, great insights on that one. Um, talking about going back to your career point, right? Was there is was there a turning point that you can reflect on in your career? Um, and also, if you were to look back, I know you came from pretty humble beginnings, right? Uh, think about what what were some of the toughest challenges that you've you faced growing up or in your career? How did you overcome that? Uh, what was the learning? If there's anything you can share? Yeah, I'll, I'll um, actually I had a, a chance to to listen to um, a LinkedIn Live event uh, with uh, really my first uh, official mentor, uh, a gentleman named Chris Lord. Mm. Um, he he's somebody who who brought me on to uh, my gig at Hitachi Consulting. And um, you know, one of the things that that I struggled with early in my career is is being somebody who taught you know was basically self-taught as an engineer. Um, had a lot of success in, in delivering projects and, and getting work done. I hadn't really worked at scale in a team. Now, that didn't mean I didn't work with other colleagues, but working on large scale projects to, to be effective as, as a team member was something uh, I hadn't had a lot of experience with. And so when, when Chris brought me on to, to his team, um, you know, he gave me a lot of coaching and feedback about you know, how to work and scale as a team. And so I, I got a lot of value from him in that. But the real kind of reflective moment for me in that experience with Chris is, is I started thinking about how I could be more effective in scaling with others as somebody who leads through influence. You know, I started looking at the career path of, um, you know, the VPs and the other executives in the company and kind of how they went down that path. And as an engineer, I looked at a lot of them and they had kind of a PM background. So a lot of them were either program managers or project managers had moved into the executive ranks. Um, and, and I looked at that saying, okay, well, that's my path. So as an SDE3, so to speak, using our, our terms today, um, my next step would be, okay, I've got to go get skills in program management and then move into that program management field in order to accelerate my career, right? And that's something I, I still hear from people today. But at the time, I started pursuing that and I wasn't very good. This is like circa 2003, where right. uh, you know I, I was coming off of my my A game of being this you know kind of architect, you know senior engineer who uh, you know was 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 a you know really doing good stuff with .NET and speaking at Microsoft's conferences and whatnot, and struggling to do an effective job as a program and project manager delivering projects at one of our clients in the media and entertainment industry, and so I was really struggling with this, and and so I went to Chris for help, and I said, Chris. I'm, I'm not sure I'm cut out. Maybe I've reached my maximum potential, right? Maybe I am just going to be at that ceiling of that SDE3. And Chris pulled me aside. He said, well, why do you think that? I said, well, I'm not a good project manager. And Chris goes, of course you're not. And I said, I said, well, okay. Like, you're like, that sucks. And he goes, but that's not your core strength. Why would you think that you would be good at doing this when you know these are not your core strengths? 
And I said, well, I look at the career path of others and, and they've taken this path, so I think I have to do it. And he explained to me, well, your career path and others' career path aren't the same. And all of us have unique and different strengths. And to try to build muscle in an area that you just don't have interest in or a lot of innate skill in, it doesn't make sense to overexert yourself on something that you know you, you're not passionate about or you're not going to be good at. Mm. And so his feedback to me was like, well, just double down on the strengths that you have as an engineer. And, you know, again, his feedback was hire for the skills you don't have. And that was like such an incredible uh, moment in my career because I realized like, oh, I don't necessarily have to be good at everything that is that kind of represents the cornucopia of skills as an executive. Um, I can be good and deep at the things that I love and I'm passionate about and I'm, 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 I'm good at, um, but I can hire for uh, the strengths that I need where I don't have them. So for example, I have several people that I work with today on my team, Srini, who you've met, like Jason and, and, and Mahendra and others, mm -hmm. who are super strong PM leaders. And, sure. and, and I rely heavily on them to do things that I'm not good at or I'm not as strong at or I don't have passion for. Um, and that helps me become an effective leader and us an effective team. So that lesson learned, what, 17 years ago, is one that still sticks with me because I don't have to worry about trying to be something I'm not. Um, but it's okay to bring people along with me and double down on my strengths and lean into theirs. That's fascinating, Scott. That is a great piece of advice and input actually for someone um, because that is, that is so awesome, right? You don't have to be good at everything and you don't have to keep working on your weakness, rather keep working on your strengths. I mean, this is the same thing even Tiger Woods, right? He did exactly that, right? In terms of reinventing himself, focusing on the strengths, as opposed to looking at uh, what is uh, what's your weakness, and also hiring for some you know great skills that uh, are complementary to what you do, uh, that's fantastic. Scott, are they um, talking about that right? I mean, work and how you operate and how you work, um, and also your strengths. What would you say is your superpower? Uh, what do you bring to the table? What would you say is your superpower? And also, we all have blind spots. What is a bad habit that you're working on right now on the flip side? Yeah. Um, I think um, my superpower is probably, um, I, I would say, either bias for action um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a kind of leadership principle of leadership concept. Um, and... Um, and then there's there's kind of a, a set of skills that 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 come from that which I can talk about. Sure. Um, but but again, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at Amazon as as we've shared before, Srini. And one of the things I loved about Amazon was having the language and the metaphor uh, of their leadership principles. Mm. Um, and and one of them was bias for action. And when I think about why it made me feel so good to 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 think about and and be part of those leadership principles is because they generally manifest how I thought, um, but they put those words on paper. And when you think about the leadership principle of bias for action, in the vernacular of, of, of Amazon, it's, you, you, you know, leaders have bias for action. There's a few two way, there's few one-way doors in business. And so leaders bias for action knowing they can undo things. And that's coupled with our right a lot in their vernacular, which is to say that the leaders are right a lot so that when they use those um, the experience they have and the instincts they have to make decisions quickly, um, they're often right. 
And so one of the things that I, I love about that, that, that concept is that, you know, over years of building expertise, you build instinct and you develop instinct. And a lot of people um, that I've encountered who have many years of experience still find themselves questioning decisions they're going to make or working to, you know, uh, validate a lot of their assumptions. And unfortunately, uh, the competitive marketplace today doesn't afford us to take our time thinking about decisions that we need to make, especially in product strategy and product execution. And so, you know, whether it's it's me being a cow a cowboy or uh, you know me having developed skill, like I think my my superpower there is is the ability to make decisions, uh, make them quickly, learn from them, and recognize. And this is probably the most important part about having a bias for action is that you can recognize when you've made the wrong decision. Um, and and then knowing how to pull back and course correct, uh, because I, I I talk to so many people in 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 the groups that I mentor and and you know people on my teams where um, they struggle uh, and they struggle primarily with making a decision because they all fear um, what is wh what would happen if I'm wrong, or what if I make a mistake, um, and I think you know the thing I love about Microsoft's culture is is we also embrace the concept of of bias for action, um, and we don't punish people so to speak, for making decisions that were well-informed at the time, but just didn't prove to be wrong. You know, I think, Srini, you and I have been our in our share of meetings with uh, with Rajesh Jha, uh, where we've definitely have made some mistakes in, in how we run our services or how we've made product decisions. And the thing I love about working with Rajesh is he never gets mad at us. He doesn't get angry with the individual. He gets frustrated with the outcome, but he has the respect of the individual for trying and gives us credit to continue working to improve the things we do. And, and an environment where you have that, that freedom to fail, um, a, a superpower like bias for action can thrive. No, absolutely. I totally agree with that, uh, Scott. Uh, on the note of Rajesh, right, one saying, it sticks in my mind often that he quotes is, hey, make new mistakes. Don't make the same mistake yeah, twice. Right. Make new mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes, but don't make it again. Like make new mistakes, and that's there's a lot of power in that statement, right? Which is you learn from new mistakes, uh, but at the same time, make sure that you know you learn from it and don't reoccur. The mistakes don't uh, happen again. Okay. Hey, on the topic of bias for action, I totally agree with you. There are two two things there, right? One is I always believe in you have to keep moving. I mean, static being static is uh, to to basically atrophy and die, right? You keep moving and bias for action is basically take an action. Same thing with decisions, right? Uh, right or wrong, make swift decisions, course correct and keep moving as opposed to being indecisive. Um, that's one of the lessons that I've learned. That's fascinating, Scott, that you share that. Then moving along, right? Um, teams. I know teams is like, you know, we, we just found some numbers, uh, 115 million daily active users, right? Which is pretty awesome. It's the fastest growing application for us uh, at Microsoft. And the amount of uh, number of customers that we are uh, helping and impacting, which is pretty awesome. Um, so Amr, did you have a question around teams as well in terms of uh, Scott Leeds, a team that actually is underpinnings for much of what we use in teams? Yeah, absolutely. So what I was thinking, Scott, listening to you and Srini, from a decision-making standpoint and the crunch of the time and making the decision, world, as we know, have changed forever. And technology has taken the center straight and uh, ever more greater part. What's your view of future of this? You know, how the technologies like Teams and things play into the future? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think, as I mentioned before, technology is that democratizer, right? It, it gives us the opportunity for, for anyone to find success. You know, I, I believe the future will be, will be one where we have demonstrated a level of confidence and comfort in executive leaderships and boards across the world that, oh, people can be productive and work remote. There's been this stigma, and, and there's plenty of reports uh, by people way smarter than me that that kind of go into the the science and the sociology behind this. Um, but but you know, remote working technology and video conferencing and this kind of technology has been around for three decades, four decades, right? Um, but there's always been this kind of stigma about working remote, um, and and whether that be I don't trust this person is doing everything they're getting done, they're playing golf on their spare time, blah blah blah, uh, whatever those reasons may have been. This pandemic has put everyone who is an information worker at a minimum in a position where, um, you know, they can be productive remotely. We've had to be. Um, and so I think at least in my conversation with our customers and other executives that I know and internally at our company, we've realized not only can you be productive, but you can handle some of the most, in, you know, uh, intense work of your of your career and do so remotely. Like obviously, you know, our teams have been working very closely together on making sure that we've scaled our services and scaled out uh, the capabilities worldwide of teams to handle, you know, the in, in, incredible load of those 115 million daily active users and over 30 billion minutes of collaboration happening in the M365 suite in a single day. You know, that, that requires a lot of work and scale. And we've done all of that remotely. And again, thank goodness for for our partners in Azure and the people who are physically actually, you know, essential workers who are going and racking and stacking servers and connecting switches and getting our our our, our infrastructure going and, and keeping it running. But the world has changed and we can't go back. Um, you know, the the remote work is here to stay, so to speak. Now, uh, you know, from from my opinion, does that mean that anybody um, who can work remote should work remote? Perhaps not. I think there's an incredible amount of, of, of stress that comes with remote work. I think there is uh, nuance in terms of, of the type of work you're doing and um, your, you know, your relative seniority and tenure with a company. You know, it's, you know, we've onboarded hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, in, in our world, uh, Srini, uh, over the last six, seven months where, um, you know, their, their experience joining Microsoft has been completely remote and they've not met any of their colleagues physically. And I think our teams have done an incredible job of making them feel welcome. Um, but there's something to be said for standing over the shoulder of a colleague and, and learning from them or being in a conference room and, and having those social connections. Um, you know, I, so, so I, you know, to say on one hand, I'm, I'm very cavalier about everything should be remote or everything that should be remote, um, you know, that can ought to be able to, I should say. Um, but but I imagine a future when, when, when we get back to whatever the new normal is will be this hybrid model. It'll be one where, um, you know, customer, I'm sorry, employees who, who choose to either want to spend time with their family or, you know, um, choose to live in different locations will want to work remote. And I think, you know, it's up to up to companies and leaders to embrace that and provide an inclusive environment where people can do that. And at the same time, I can't imagine there's going to be a mass exodus of people selling off their commercial real estate um, and no longer having offices. We see that in pockets, and and that kind of makes sense. If you're a small business or a mid-sized business, and your your work is completely professional services or technology or something where you don't require that, you know that makes a ton of sense. But for large organizations and especially those not in technology that have you know customer um, interactions and things like that, 
um, you know, I, I imagine, uh, you know, we'll see people start to go back to, you know, some semblance of, of getting back together. Um, but the other thing I think will be very interesting is to see what the world of travel evolves to. Obviously, the, 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 the hospitality and travel industry is, is, is probably one of the most affected by this pandemic. Um, and I know there's a lot of government subsidies and things that are out there to try and help keep those companies afloat during this time. But I imagine that people will probably spend more money on business travel, or at least they'll spend money differently um, as, as, as people work remotely they'll still want to get together. They'll still want to see each other. So I anticipate, like, for example, in, in our organizations, we'll probably do more off-sites where it's bringing people in from around the world to central locations. It will be less frequent, um, but I think those things will be part of a new normal of, of how people communicate and connect. Almost like imagine, you know, Srini and, and Amr, we've been to our conferences together and, you know, gone through that experience with our customers. You can imagine that you might have that same kind of energy and excitement when you meet your colleagues, right? Yeah. So only time will tell. Um, but, but I guess the key takeaway is I, I do think the future is not completely remote, but I think remote is here to stay. Well said. Well said, Scott. And I think as Satya said, right, um, there is two years of transformation that happened in two months. That's right. During the pandemic. And you can actually look around in terms of how things like healthcare, telehealth uh, is completely, I mean, the whole model is shifted. Uh, education and learning, how even kids do education today. I'm sure your kids can't. Um, I mean, they're all on either Teams or other online tools. Um, are taking an education online, and that's going to change perhaps uh, forever in terms of the hybrid model itself. It's fascinating to see that. Scott, talking about meetings and gatherings and how we get together and all of that, um, this is one thing that I'm always curious about. Uh, you know, every leader has a different style, different technique, different. What does a Scott Van Bleet meeting look like? What does your leadership team meeting look like? How do you run meetings? Are there some tips and tricks others can learn? Uh, how do you make it more effective, especially in the online and sitting on this thing called Teams, especially? Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a great question. Um, you know, um, for those that uh, that have been in uh, any of the meetings that I've been in, um, I'm a huge believer in the written narrative. Mm. And and well, I guess maybe before I, I go into the how, I'm going to go into the why. You know, I I think especially during kind of these times, we spend a lot of time in meetings. And in many cases, we we go and say, hey, there's a topic we need to discuss, and so let's get a meeting on the books to discuss it. And we do so in increments of 30 minutes or an hour or, or longer, because that is the structure we're used to in terms of how people get together to have conversations. But in many cases, meetings get together to have a conversation that could have easily been an asynchronous conversation in email or in a channel or in a one-on-one -on -one or group chat. Um, and so, uh, off, and also often meetings, uh, you know, are scheduled without an agenda, without a set of objectives and a set of desired outcomes. And so one of the things that, that I, I try to work on hard is, is, is if we have a meeting, let's make sure there's a set of objectives, there's a set of known outcomes, and there's a set of expectations in terms of who's doing what and what we expect of people when they join that meeting. So I think driving clarity around those things is super critical. It doesn't happen 100% of the time, but setting out the priority to say that this is how we want meetings to work um, happens. And of course, there's there's you know caveats to that where you know hey we have a status update or we have a ship room and those are kind of structured meetings that happen. 
that's fine. But those also kind of have their own outcome. They have their kind of uh, have their own kind of input and output expectations. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I work to say if this meeting is happening, could it not be a meeting? So that's kind of step one: is could we do this in a in, a, in an asynchronous way? Uh, number two is you know I, I I believe PowerPoint is a super useful tool for sharing information in kind of a uh, the delivery of information in a, in a talk and in, in a presentation. But for most of the meetings I go to, it's really about having a discussion to try and make a decision on a set of information or facts and a set of recommendations. And I've been in so many meetings where yeah, I've seen PMs or, or other people work so hard on putting together a great deck. And that presentation deck is 30 slides and the storytelling is super well figured out. And you know, if you follow the narrative that comes with it, um, it'll be great. And then we get in the meeting with the executives and on the second slide, the executive starts asking all of these questions because the executive wanted to ask those questions for the point of the meeting. And the reality is those, those questions are answered on slide seven and slides 13 and slides 19, but we'll never get to them because the executive just jumps in. And so, <laughs> yeah. so, so you know, you've been in those, yeah. three, you and I've been in many of those together. <laughs> it's so, um, and, yeah. And yeah. so so rather than, than, than do that in those kind of discussion meetings, I focus and prefer on the written narrative. And again, this comes from, uh, you know, obviously was refined in my experience working across the lake at Amazon. Um, but the idea of a narrative document being one that captures the details and, and the data and the context about a decision or about a problem statement or about a customer issue in the written narrative format and one where when you join the meeting, you spend the first 10, 15, 20 minutes reading that document does a couple of things. One, in preparing the document, it has the team do the hard work to flesh out all of the detail and understanding prior to the meeting starting. And I'm not to say that 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 I've not been in a situation where I have some slides and I BS my way through them when I'm unprepared, but oftentimes it's very easy to put three points, uh, you know, three bullet points up or four bullet points up on a screen and then just kind of talk through it off the cuff. We have very talented people who can do that, but that may not necessarily be the thing that helps get to the decision you want. The document serves as a forcing function for people to go and do the hard work to have all the context set. And in some cases, I found myself in meetings where the meetings ended up getting canceled because the team putting them together realized that when they wrote the doc, the decision had already been made and clear, and they didn't need clarity because when they went and did the work to write the document, they discovered it. Um, so there's a kind of a, a fun anecdote there. Um, but, but the reality is, is when you go in the meeting and everyone's reading, it, it get, you know, the first couple of times you do it, it's un uncomfortable and awkward because you're basically all in a Teams call uh, and uh, and everyone's reading quietly. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, is that everyone by the end of that time reading the document has the same context because they've read the same document. And if written well, um, they all should really have the same um, context and be able to have a discussion about the decisions and outputs we want to drive. Um, the other thing that it does is by having a written narrative that everyone is forced to read through in that time, um, it allows the executives, uh, as you and I know, Srini, they actually can answer their own questions by finishing the document before, you know, jumping to uh, a question they have on the first paragraph, right? And, and again, in my own reviews, I actually ask lots of questions in the document, um, and then I go back and as I'm reading, I answer them and I go and I delete the comments. And this is again, we're using Word online. And so I'll go back and delete the comment because I've answered the question myself later in the document. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I think the, the last piece is um, in, in going through this process, um, it's much easier to have a memorialized kind of set of notes and context by sharing that document with comments and decisions 
rather than sending the deck, which may not captured all that may not have captured all the nuance of the changes in the meeting and the the, the facts of of the discussion, the same way a narrative with comments and, and action items would have. That's so true, Scott. I mean, that is. I mean, the point that you made about um, the long form. Even I, I used to be uncomfortable in the beginning, right? In terms of sitting quietly, silently in a call, it's awkward silence, reading through a long document, but it actually adds a lot of clarity. Long form writing actually clarifies a lot of things, and it's a skill that you have to develop. But uh, if written well, like you said, I think it answers most of the questions that would come up otherwise, and then you can spend much of the discussion in terms of decision making, Q&A, and so on and so forth. That's that's, uh, that's fascinating. Scott, talking about moving along, we talked about team, team building, how you work uh, as a leader. One of the important jobs that we hold and we do as leaders and managers is attracting and retaining great talent, right? Um, every leader has a different way, different set of attributes that they look at. Uh, can you talk to me about what are your hiring best practices? What do you look for? when you hire others in leadership roles, especially uh, key attributes. You talked about, hey, you know, pedigree doesn't matter. I'm all, I, I believe the same. I don't come from the biggest of uh, uh, names. Um, but what are the skills, experience, attributes you look for when you hire? Great talent. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And obviously it's, it's, it's a complicated topic as we think about all the things that go into making a great leader. Um, but there's a few things that I look for when I'm interviewing candidates that help me understand whether or not this is somebody who I who I want to work with and lean into. Um, the first one, frankly, is attitude. We talk a lot about aptitude in the evaluation of talent, and aptitude is an important aspect of it. Does this individual have the the skill set? Do they have the aptitude? Do they have the proven experience? Depending on the role, some of that stuff is table stakes. You have to go for it. But to me, attitude is such an important part of the, the, the kind of quality of characteristics of, of a leader. You know, does this individual have humility? Has this individual made bad choices in the past? And are they willing to demonstrate those decisions and what they've learned in doing so? You know, interviewing a candidate and all they want to talk about is the great wins they've had and how much success they've had. Um, without kind of recognizing or acknowledging some of the decisions they made that, that didn't go well, that speaks a lot to the type of person you might find yourself working with. Is that person going to run uh, when the, the going gets hard? Are they going to you know, try and hide their failures in a way that could damage customers? And I, I think there's a lot to, to, to looking at somebody and looking at their attitude related to the humility um, that they have, you know, whether or not they're, they're confident but not boastful. Is, is super critical. Um, and then, you know, kind of along the lines of aptitude, does the individual have a willingness to learn? You know, a lot of times when we write a job description and we go out and we interview and, and, and talk with candidates, uh, people will treat the interview process as a checklist. Has this person had the experience doing this, that, and the other thing? And in the, in the context of engineering, it's relatively straightforward to, to, to use some of that to your advantage. Does this person understand data structures? Have they developed complicated algorithms? You know, have they worked in transport? And you can do kind of technical assessments through, through whiteboarding and whatnot. But the reality is there's so much nuance to people's lived experiences that help make them effective at their job that the, the, the JD to me is more of a reference chart to the things we might want to look for in leaning in 
in the conversation and discovering you know, how people make decisions, how people approach the decisions they've made um, and, and, and think about the, the, the quality of their character um, to me is one, one of the things that, that can make the difference between a fantastic hire that I'll work with for the next 10 or 20 years versus one that, hey, I'll hire for six months and, and they'll, they'll fizzle out. Um, and, uh, and again, nine times out of 10, in my experience, somebody who has a great attitude outperforms somebody with the best of skill uh, you know, more often than not. That is so powerful, Scott. I totally subscribe to that. That is absolutely powerful, what you just said. Um, in terms of uh, aptitude and attitude. Um, are there any advice or best advice that you follow on the opposite end of that? Like, you know, um, we always know as leaders, right? Hey, hire slowly and fire quickly. How do you manage poor performers? What are some of the things? Is that the hardest thing to do for you? Or perhaps some people do it very quickly and easily. Um, what's, the, what's the best advice or how do you how do you follow that? Yeah. I think one of the things that it's super hard to give people uh, bad news, right? And it's hard in many, for many people, most people, it's hard to tell somebody they're not doing something correctly or they're not doing good, right? They're not doing well. Um, but it's so important when dealing with somebody who's struggling with performance or struggling to do their job that you acknowledge those things as they happen. You know, we often use the word that, you know, the phrase uh, feedback is a gift. You know, what I find people who who have performance issues um, and, and end up finding themselves in a position where, you know, they either get put on a performance plan or, you know, they head down that path. The behaviors they've demonstrated, the challenges they face have been happening for some period of time and people haven't had the courage to tell them that they're not doing well. Um, and, and I think the most important part about managing someone who isn't meeting your expectations. I'm not going to say manage poor performers or manage them out because I think that is an action assuming um, intent versus an action assuming how do I help manage the performance of somebody to perform better, right? Because I've definitely had to, to manage people out, um, but but the, the approach I take is just different, right? It's about what are the things we're doing to identify people who are struggling early, give them feedback and actions to address it early, and have a constant um, and frequent feedback loop with those individuals to let them know whether or not they're succeeding or failing. Um, and, and multiple times in my career, I've had situations where somebody wasn't performing at expectation. Um, I took the time and energy to, to invest in those individuals um, and say, okay, well, here's, here, you're not working out and here's the things that, that you're not working out on. And those people became my top performers because the context in which they weren't performing was important. They weren't performing because they were working on something they didn't have experience in, and the people who knew those code bases or knew the things they were working on were gone in the company, and that individual didn't have a supportive manager, right? And, and so it. without knowing that context, I would have just saw this person on a list of people who are below performance expectations and said, okay, we got to manage them out. And so I, I think that genuine human care uh, is so critical, no matter what level in the organization, and I think a focus on trying to get the feedback to the individual early um, and to, um, um, to, to, to give that feedback frequently to try and help them. That is such an excellent point, Scott. I think it's the, the point is not like, hey, how do you, um, how do you manage poor performers out? But uh, I think there's a lot more to it in terms of recognizing and investing time, like you said, right? Uh, people don't 
perform poorly because they want to perform poorly. It's they are struggling because it could be any number of reasons. Um, one of the things that I learned from Jeff Weiner, uh, CEO of LinkedIn, uh, who is now the chairman of LinkedIn, um, which is a very powerful concept, and he said, "Hey, the most important things about leadership is compassionate leadership, being able to understand." It's not just empathizing with what's happening, but what action are you taking as a as a leader? And that could be giving feedback, that could be understanding where the struggle is from, and making sure that your job as a leader is to elevate that person and their vision and their strength and their capabilities over for the long term. Uh, that's so awesome. Scott, are there any just getting into a little bit of a fun Q and A here? Uh, switching gears again, uh, are there any common misconceptions about you that you people have misconceptions of? Yeah, so um, I, I'm, I'm generally known as a pretty um, uh, extroverted, bombastic, you know, uh, friendly <laughs> guy, right? And and I, I definitely, I, you know, I, Is I love- Is that a misconception? Well, I'm going to tell you that. So, so here's the thing, and, it, and it's an oddity. So, so I love talking. I like hearing myself talk. Blah blah blah. All the things you'd expect from an extrovert. But the, there's one context in which I behave. Steve Saxon, who's a a colleague of ours, you know, explained to me this concept of being an ambivert. There's mm -hmm. one concept in which I I'm totally introverted, and that's on airplanes. So you would <laughs> imagine you could imagine Scott. I know you. Uh, you know, you sit on an airplane. You're just going to start hamming it up with the person next to you, right? Okay. Yeah. making lifelong friends yeah um when i get on the plane i've got my airpods in i've got my 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 laptop ready to go and i'm like i don't want to talk to anybody i want to get my work done i want to watch my <laughs> movies i want to sleep and and people would assume like and i've flown with our colleagues before you know going uh, overseas and whatnot and you know uh i, I think uh maybe it was bj was like man you're not very friendly on the plane uh and i was like i got my thing like i'm on the plane i put on my pajamas i'm gonna sleep um, and so that may be one misconception is that I definitely am an extrovert, but um, in certain contexts, uh, I like uh, I like the introverted aspect of uh, of my personality. That's so funny. I'm laughing because I'm I'm not an extrovert, but at the same time, the so I can relate to the plane thing, right? I get on a plane, I don't want to talk to anyone. I just yeah, want right. to just focus. Yeah, open a book and read and listen. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, hey, talking about AirPods, Scott, I think it was one of my best investments that I made. I think um, what what hundred dollar or less purchase that has most impacted your life? It could be during pandemic or otherwise. Uh, what is what is that? What would that be? It's a it's a great question, um, and uh, I've bought myself lots of gadgets um, uh, over the years, and and very specifically, you know, during the pandemic, and I've spent a bunch of money on microphones and cameras, and that's been a lot of fun. But I will tell you, the one thing that's around a hundred bucks, uh, that's a set of things that I bought that has really changed my life, is I bought a spool of Cat Six cable, uh, a, a a container of um, you know self or crimping ends, or easy crimp ends, and a crimper. And I started running wire through my house um, to have all of my my computer hardwired, all of my kids' laptops hardwired because they're doing school remotely, and that has really changed the quality of our lives. Obviously, you know, I get in debates with people about, well, Wi-Fi six is going to solve all your problems. Uh, maybe if I'm lucky enough for all the devices to support Wi-Fi six right now, um, but I will tell you that the 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 the, the Wi-Fi is awesome. But I, I just, you know, when we have so many video streams going on, I've, I've got six kids, five of whom are at home, and they're also on video calls concurrently as we're doing this 
this podcast, you know, having that wired connection just makes things so much easier. And of course, my 15 year old son uh, loves the fact that he has hardwired internet for his gaming uh, because <laughs> super low latency and he can he can crush it at uh, at Fortnite and uh, the other multiplayer games he plays. That is a pretty awesome one. I haven't heard of that before. Even though I have wired and I have you know uh, you know wired computers everywhere, uh, but I, that's a very good purchase, Scott. I, I think I'd like I'll get a model number from you later on. Yeah, yeah. Although yeah. I, I I do recommend. Uh, be be smart about going up in the attic uh, and and having someone hold your ladder. I did have a, a, a near miss of falling out of the attic because the ladder wasn't secured correctly. So I do encourage either uh, you know if you are skilled in in running stuff through your attic, make sure you have at least two people um, or hire somebody to do that. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Good advice. Hey, hey Scott. On the flip side, what is uh, your guilty pleasures? What expensive toys you buy? Ooh, uh, <laughs> I would say. From from a from a activities perspective, my biggest guilty pleasure is probably scrolling and trolling on Reddit. Um, but uh, in terms of of guilty pleasures, I'm a bit of a collector of musical instruments, uh, and so um, there's this website called Reverb. I spend way too much time there looking at guitars and basses and instruments that I want to buy. And um, there are uh, I have some instruments hanging on my wall uh, that I play in the meetings, and and then I guess the guilty activity is that oftentimes during meetings, I will have a guitar strapped around my neck uh, below the camera view, and I'll be playing along during the meeting to keep my hands occupied. That's pretty wow, awesome. awesome. May I ask you what car you drive? Uh, because I'm an automobile fanatic, <laughs> so that's why I'm asking that. You should ask Joe Rafferty that. <laughs> oh yeah, Joe's got his drums. I, I, t I keep telling him we, we've got to build a, a virtual jam session in Teams so he and I can play. You just bought um, a Lambo. <laughs> Yeah, but my most recent uh, acquisition of a guitar was the uh, uh, Ernie Ball Music Man. It's a Stingray guitar, uh, but it's the Dustin Kensrue model, the Artist Series. He, he's a guitar player for a band called Thrice, uh, which is a, a group of, of musicians we used to play with back in the day when I was young. Uh, and uh, that guitar sounds amazing. Got it. Scott, who are your role models or mentors? Do you have any role models or mentors? The two or three people that have been most influential to you? Now, before any time, yeah. So, Why? so I think, I think you know. So, Chris Lord is one of my career mentors. I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast. Uh, he's still somebody I look up to dearly and uh, and appreciate every lesson he taught me. Um, uh, another uh, role model and hero of mine is my grandfather. And uh, and you know, my, my grandfather, my grandmother uh, on my my father's side, you know, came to this country with nothing. Um, you know, left. Uh, you know, a war-torn, uh, you know, post-World War II Europe uh, to come to this country and, uh, you know, sacrificed a lot to, to give us a, a future uh, in, in America. And, and so I look at the contributions that uh, they've made um, and, uh, and that makes me, me super proud of, of, uh, of our family name and the things we've done. Uh, I'm also super proud of my dad um, and, and look up to him in terms of the lessons he taught me about you know, standing up for for myself and for people I care about, most importantly, and then and then maybe lastly, you know, I, I you know while my mom was alive, I, I obviously I loved my mother dearly, but I don't think I gave her enough credit for the mm. person I am today based on who she was and and the role model she set for me. You know, my mom was a a, a hairstylist and had a, a salon for forty years and worked as a, a stylist for fifty years. Wow, and. As a young boy, I learned a lot of my entrepreneurial skills um, by going with my mom to work uh, and going to the beauty salon. 
And, uh, you know, I, I, I used to go to the salon, sweep up hair and clean perm solution out of rollers. And I get paid a quarter and this and that from the ladies bringing them coffee. Um, but one of the things that I now recognize as an adult is, you know, I think my gift of gab, if you will, you know, came from my mom because she sat, you know, had her customers sit in that chair mm-hmm. and, you know, she would listen to all their stories, hear about all of their pain and anguish and personal challenges and had advice and feedback to give to every one of them. And most of her clients she had for over 30 or 40 years. And and when I think, you know, back to her funeral, how many of those clients came to her funeral and, and talked about the experience of, of uh, what it was like to, to be one of my mom's friends and, and how important they felt. Every year they got a birthday card, every Christmas they got a gift. And my mom was just an amazing friend. And so I look back on her very differently now. Obviously, I loved her as my mom, but now I look back at her as somebody who, who was a role model for me about being a great friend without actually knowing it. And so in many ways, you know, she is one of my heroes, and I look up to, to her and want to uh, leave a good legacy in her name for how I treat others. Uh, this is amazing. Scott, that is, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I do the show, why I do it. I mean, the amount of learning, what you just shared there, Scott, there is so much gold there. It's it's full of nuggets, right? I mean, all those learning comes from any different, any number of sources. Uh, that's fascinating, Scott, what you just shared. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. And I was going to say, Srini, that I can relate to it because I've done similar things because my mom was a hairstylist too. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I didn't know that. Cool. Although I don't think my mom would have approved of my COVID beard. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know COVID has changed uh, all of us, right, into uh, different ways in different ways. Uh, it's got uh, switching gears again uh, from that. I want to ask, what's your favorite book? Usually, I do ask in terms of, hey, are there any particular books that you gift often to people? And because that tells what what kind of book, or what, what what would that book be? And we can learn from. And what is the last book that you read that you would recommend? Yeah, so um, I uh, I would say that uh, Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors. Uh, and so you know his series of books, Blink, Tipping Point, Outliers, uh, uh, you know, and and David and Goliath. These these are all fantastic books. And and one of the books I I, I often give out is um, uh, is Outliers. Got it. Um, in, in describing these kind of archetypes. And I believe outliers um, and, and may describe, I think, Joe Flom's uh, interviews in that. And I believe that's the book in which he talked about the 10,000 hour rule, uh, which again, I know he's talked about that not being a literal concept. Um, <clears throat> but I think a recognition of understanding that there's different archetypes of, of leaders, um, it, it, it played a, a, a very special place in my heart because as he talks about Maven's connectors, um, and and sales salesmen or salespeople, um, it made me recognize that okay, there's not one formula for success, and it kind of validated the hypothesis I had from Chris and from other leaders. And so uh, I use that book as a way to get people into Gladwell. Number one, uh, and and number two is is a way to open people's minds about the uh, you know uh, you know my my physical uh, uh, fitness is is not good these days, but I had a personal trainer. You know who's you know who said get the effing work done, right? As 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 a metaphor of 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 finding your way to fitness, and I find so much of 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 what people are doing in business is trying to find shortcuts and and ways of 
of just you know uh, you know getting advantage of the system and, and just trying to win uh, without putting in the work. And I'm not one of those people who say you have to be here a certain number of years before you get promoted. I don't believe in any of that. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that success can come from hard work. And so the idea of mastering your craft requires time and iteration. To me, that that was super important. Um, cool. And, and I think you know a, a recent book. Um, and, and the name escapes me, uh, but uh, you know, Gladwell's latest book, uh, where he actually talks about systemic racism and the default of truth. Um, I can't believe I'm I'm looking at my bookshelf, but I bought it as an Audible book, and uh, I'll have to come back and and uh, annotate the the podcast. But uh, uh, but Gladwell's latest book, uh, Talking to Strangers. Sorry, Talking to Strangers. Talking yeah, to Strangers. Exactly. Sorry. Um, and and it's funny because I listened to it on a drive from Washington to California. Um, and, and hearing the first story, uh, you know, about uh, uh, this poor woman who hung herself, uh, who was pulled over, she was African American, and and the idea of, um, you know, the sources of um, our preconceived judgments about people and our default to truth or our failure to default to truth, like that book was just incredibly eye-opening to me about my own preconceptions and, and prejudgments, and so that's another book that uh, I think is a is a worthwhile read. Awesome, thank you, Scott. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think uh, all the Malcolm Gladwell books are fantastic read, uh, a lot of learning. The one thing from Tipping Point was, you know, the whole concept of broken windows, right? Yep. I mean, talk about bias for action. The broken windows concept, mavens, connectors, and salespeople. Uh, fascinating read. Amar, do you uh, want to go next? Yeah, so talking about bias for action and attitude, you know, so that was really resonating. But I wanted to ask Scott that how do you feel about uh, in a leader's trait, uh, empathy and achiever in contrast to these? Yeah, I mean, I I would say uh, having empathy is the is the the the, the paramount aspect of of being an effective leader. And, and, and again, I mentioned that earlier on, on one of my, my personal mantras of, of you know, uh, seek to understand before demanding to be understood. Mm. And a lot of people confuse sympathy with empathy, right? And, yeah. and I think it's critically important to recognize and understand that having sympathy for somebody isn't the same as, as being empathetic to their situation and giving people consideration for uh, situations they may face or, um, you know, uh, uh, biases you might have of yourself about their experience. And so I think I think being genuine and being human uh, when you're working with other people who are also human is just so important to be effective as a leader. That doesn't mean, you know, um, uh, one of the leaders I worked for, a guy named Ethan Evans, who is an executive at Amazon who's recently retired, you know, talked about, Scott, it's okay to be friendly, but you don't always have to be friends. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think sometimes people will also confuse empathy with trying to gain the friendship and adoration of the people you worked with uh, in that context. And that's not necessarily empathy. Empathy is, is, is one of those aspects of, of trying to understand someone and give them considerations for their uniqueness. Um, but it doesn't require friendship, uh, so to speak, or it doesn't require trying to get people to like you. Um, it just, you know, frankly, it's just being human, right? Great. Great. So, you know, this goes back to what you had earlier said. So hire the people for what you can train them, not for that, what the skills, you know, that's they right. have, right? That's yeah. Right. So that's amazing. So I can totally relate to it. Thank you so much for that. Of course. Hey, Scott, I think we, we are um, nearing the end. I have two questions. 
One is, uh, we talked about how you got into the tech space at Microsoft. Obviously, you know, um, the stuff that we currently do is so impactful. What advice would you offer someone, uh, whether someone who is starting out or, I mean, there are very young engineers coming into Teams and Microsoft engineering and product roles. What would you recommend? Um, what advice would you give for to them who are starting out or trying to move up? Uh, it's 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 a it's a really interesting question because I think you know my 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 answer would probably would have been different in January. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the biggest piece of advice is to have patience with yourself. Mm. A lot of a lot of people I've talked to in kind of our our um, our, our onboarding cohorts, the folks that we've been bringing on, and they're facing some really interesting challenges. You know, when I think about, you know, again, a lot of a lot of what we do is we we look at the lens, and this goes back to what Amar was saying earlier about empathy. Uh, it, we look at the lens uh, of the world through through our own experiences, right? Our own lived experiences inform how we look at the world. And so, as as you know, a, a father and a, and a husband, I think about my experience being at home and this pandemic reflected on. Okay, you know, my kids are home all the time. I'm home all the time. My wife is probably annoyed that I'm home all the time. But you know, like, oh, it's the commonality of like, oh, we're schooling our kids at home or kids are running in during a meeting. Ha ha. This is the lived experiences. But for a lot of our our new hires, they're recent college graduates. They may have just moved to the Seattle or Puget Sound area. They may be living with a roommate they'd never met. Um, and they may have aspirations to, you know, find someone uh, to date, to go out and, and make friends. And, and moving to a, a city where you know don't know anyone and you're in an apartment with a roommate who you may hate because you didn't know them and you're sharing that apartment with them, uh, where you can't go out to bars and you can't go out to restaurants or at least before, you know, when this whole thing started. What an incredibly challenging time for these, these you know, young folks starting their, their careers. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, what, what I think about the, the advice I might I, I give to them is, is to have patience. It's okay to say, I, I don't think I can do this. I, I may need to move back with my family or I may need to make changes to how I think about it. Or if that person is, is not uh, able to, to kind of cope with the complexities of onboarding, it's okay to, to to ask for help. It's okay to take time and 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 slow down and and figure out how to adapt to this new normal. Um, because again, I, I think especially when you look at the the people that we're hiring and, and a lot of companies are hiring, you know, they're graduating from top schools. They're they're often you know the the head of their class and and this and that. And so they're used to being overachievers and they're used to having to work super hard to overachieve to be successful. And and coming in, they're probably going to want to replicate that, but just I would say just know that we get it. We we are we are being considerate. We're considerate of your time, and we're considerate of the uh, the timing. I should say of 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 your onboarding. And so 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 have a bit of patience with yourself. Have a bit of patience with your situation. That is sound advice, Scott. Awesome advice. In fact, given this current situation, right? I mean, that is very relevant. I would say. Uh, thank you for that. Scott, before we wrap up, um, I mean, this whole show, I think uh, you had chock full of advice and lessons. Is there any best advice that you ever got uh, and the lessons that you learned you want to share? Um, the biggest and the best, if there is one. Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
I'll, I'll tell you one piece of advice that uh, uh, I got. I, I think, you know, the, the 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 advice I shared earlier about not trying to to not trying to to be someone you're not, so to speak, right, in the form of you know my skills as a as a program manager aren't as strong as my skills as an engineer. I think that's probably one of the the pieces that have, have stuck with me the most. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think if there's a, a another uh, nugget that I can share with you that would be more impactful than that uh, that particular uh, takeaway for me. And I'm, I may not I may not have one. I have lots of other. Yeah, that's okay. I think uh, you shared quite a bit. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of good advice in this uh, in this show, Scott. Thank you. And on that note, thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the show. Amar, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Amar, do you have any final questions or thoughts? No, I just wanted to thank you and Scott. This has been a treat. What a way to, you know, uh, start the weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you, thanks, Srini. Scott. And uh, Amar, thank you for your, your participation in this and the Give campaign and Srini for having me. You bet. Thank you. Take Bye. Care. Have a great weekend. Bye.